I want to spend a little extra time this morning reflecting on the second reading from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, because I think, if I'm not mistaken, most of you are like me, and I need to hear things often like, have no anxiety at all. And plus, I think it's worthwhile kind of digging into it a little bit, because sometimes I think you hear a phrase like that, or you just see it down on the sign down by the road, and it's like, have no anxiety at all. Thanks so much. That's great. I really appreciate that. You know, it's like, well, how? You know, like, how does that work? How is it not just like an empty Hallmark card phrase? Like, how do we get into that? Because on a certain level, it's sort of like Bobby McFerrin, you know, don't worry, be happy. Like, okay, how do we get into this and see the meaning that comes from it? Like, how can we hear St. Paul say, have no anxiety at all, especially in our crazy fallen world, and actually take him up on that? Well, I think a couple of things that are important to do is, first of all, to look at St. Paul himself and the context of where he's writing this letter. So it's his letter to the Philippians, right? And he was writing to the people in Philippi when he was in prison in Rome, okay? And he was getting pretty close to his execution. And like I said, he's in prison. Now, I got to tell you, I've been to prison, not to stay, but to go and visit the prisoners, and it is not a place of wonderful peace and calm and joy in which you say, have no anxiety at all. I mean, it's tough, right? I mean, there are stereotypes, and they're not false, but he's writing in chains, in prison, to the people in Philippi, have no anxiety at all. Like, how is he able to say that as he's wearing chains, as he's seeing, you know, just the difficulties, the fallenness of humankind around him, you know, just the injustice of being there for proclaiming the gospel, and yet he can say, have no anxiety at all. Well, the fact of the matter is, is he gets to that point of saying, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I think to focus on that and who our Lord is, who Jesus Christ is, we look to the parable for today and how St. Paul can write this and say this and keep a straight face and really mean it, have no anxiety at all. We look at this parable, and remember, this is the third Sunday in a row now that we're getting a parable about the vineyard, right? We had the, the, uh, the various workers throughout the day, the landowners going out for them all day long until the last ones, you know, are you envious because I'm generous? And then last week, we had the vineyard and the two sons. No, I won't go. Okay, I'll go. And then, yes, of course I'll go. And then he never goes. And then this week, we get yet another vineyard, another landowner. And you notice, too, this one, it's almost like an analogy, and you can tell that the first reading from Isaiah is very much right there in the midst of this parable. But basically, remember, it's the Son of God himself telling this parable to the chief priests and the elders. This is during Holy Week. Passion or uh, Palm Sunday has already happened. It's the chief priests and the elders, the very people that form the Sanhedrin, that's going to come together to plot to kill him. And it's the Son of God in their midst talking to them and giving them an analogy from the creation of the world to the present as he's there. You know, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and of course that takes planning ahead of time. So he's the one, once again, that's doing all the work. Planted a vineyard, put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and then hands it all over to tenants. 
and then gives them some space to do what they're going to do, to you know, participate in the work. But the trouble is, as you can see with these tenants, they've fallen into the same trap that our first parents did, buying into the lie of the devil. Did God really say, you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And the fact of the matter is, like, well, why would he have created trees and made fruit if you can't eat from any of them, right? The devil from the beginning wants us to think that God is out to take advantage of us, that he doesn't really want us to be happy. He doesn't really want what's best for us. That basically it's like an us versus them sort of thing. You got to get what, what you can get while you can get it. And that's the way these tenants are living. And unfortunately, it's the history of ancient Israel, right? Like God saves them from the Egyptians. And what do they do? They worship a golden calf, right? We have so many times of them falling away. And time and again, God is sending his prophets, sending his people, Moses and Isaiah. And Isaiah, we heard from in the first reading, died by martyrdom. Like time and again, he's saying to them, remember, I love you. I created you. I want to work with you. And then finally, we get this from the Son of God himself speaking on behalf of the Father. He's the one who knows the Father and reveals the Father to us. They will respect my Son. Now, the Father's not naive, but at the same time, he sends his Son, sends his beloved one to them. And this is the one looking at those that are going to plot to kill him and is telling them this whole parable. Now, something that I think is really important to notice in this parable is the response that they say, right? Because the Son of Man, who in just a few days after this, is going to be thrown out of Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified and die at the hands of the very people he's looking at as he says this, right? But he says to them, you know, what will he do when he comes? And they say, notice this, it's not Jesus saying this, they answered him. He will put those wretched men to a wretched death and lease his vineyard to other tenants. Jesus isn't the one who's saying, I'm coming back to kick butt and take names. No, he is giving them everything, showing them what the Father does and pouring out the Son and giving him to us. He's looking at us and loving us, looking at them and loving them as they're plotting his death, trying to win them over. Guys, I'm not here to rob from you. I want you to participate in my creative work to be fulfilled, to love all of this, right? And yet, we know what they're going to do. Unfortunately, the, the reading today ended a little bit early. The last two verses of chapter 21, so we're at the very end of chapter 21, it says this, and there's a really important insertion here. When the chief priests and the Pharisees, because you notice at the beginning he said he was talking to the chief priests and the elders. Here it says, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Duh, right? But when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Okay, so they're going to go off and start plotting to kill him. But the reason why I say chief priests and the Pharisees, right? You know who a very famous Pharisee was? Saul, who becomes Paul. And what did Saul do? He was a Pharisee. He takes off to persecute the body of Christ, wanting to take members of the church, bring them in chains, lock them up, end this whole movement following the way, following Jesus Christ. What happens? He's met by our Lord on the way. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? 
how does Jesus handle things? He doesn't put Saul, that wretched man, to a wretched death. He looks at him and says, why are you persecuting me, the body of Christ, my beloved? Whatever you did to one of these least of ones, you did it to me. And that Pharisee that is Paul has a complete turnaround, right? Jesus doesn't just put that wretched man to a wretched death. He converts him. All of a sudden, Paul is a living reality of the fact that, as we said a few weeks ago in talking about forgiveness, love is greater than sin. Our Lord's response to the evil and the injustice of the world is to look at it with love, to die for us, and to rise from the dead. And that is stronger than all the sin, the evil, the dog-eat-dog world that these tenants, the chief priests, the elders, you know, the heads of the people are taking on, grasping at their own thing. The fact of the matter is he comes to tell us the same thing. And when we force him out of our lives, all of a sudden we're in that dog-eat-dog world in which all of us are, you know, just basically in a big battle royale, me versus you, get what you can while you can until we're done, right? But that is not the foundation of reality. Jesus gives us this parable that this is what the Father does. He creates all of this to produce good fruits But think about the good fruits. St. Paul tells us what to think about. Truth, honor, justice, purity, love, graciousness, excellence. All of these things we get to participate in. And when we produce that kind of good fruit, we are fulfilled. The very act of cooperating with him is what we were made to do, to be. And when we get into this weird transactional, like I got to get mine, like these tenants, and notice... The Heavenly Father says, they will respect my son. And they call him what? Here's the heir. They don't think about him like a son. They just think about it in transactional terms. That's not reality. Ultimately, at the end of everything, our Lord wants us to participate in his creative love. And how does he come to tell us? He keeps telling them parables. He's looking at his murderers in the face, basically trying to win them over. And the good news is, he did win over Paul who at this point is able to be in prison to say, have no anxiety at all. And he can mean it. And how do we actually stay in that? By prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Now he's in prison, and yet he's saying, be thankful. How do we do that? I'll just tell you this. So, you know, I was on retreat this last week. It was glorious. The weather was perfect. Maggie Valley's beautiful. I'm in the mountains. And it's so nice just, you know, kind of be away for a while. No screens, spending time with my friends. And then when I came back on Friday, had a late lunch with my buddy, Father Paul McNulty. Went to a restaurant up there we always love to go to. And normally, love going to this place. But, you know, here we are. It's the start of Halloween season. And don't get me wrong. I'm okay with a little spookiness, right? Like, cobwebs, fine. We got them all over the rectory. Like, we're decorated for Halloween, you know, 12 months a year. It's glorious. So a little bit of that, fine. But like walking into this restaurant, it's like the Amityville horror. It was terrifying and demonic. Like I feel like the decorations, like it's not just, ooh, there's a black cat. It's like, oh, here's Freddy Krueger and Jason and their chainsaw. It's like, I want to eat, not like be at the house of horrors. And the thing is, this stuff, right? The evil in the world, it's all around us so much of the time. And if all we do is focus on all of that, of course we're going to get down and think, how can you say have no anxiety at all? But the fact of the matter is, our Lord 
is stronger than sin, than death, than gore, than evil that's out there. And if we're going to spend our time, this is the other thing, right? There's TVs everywhere, like every restaurant now. A commercial comes on for Saw 10. Goodness gracious, like, why was there one of those? There's 10? It's like, it's insanity, right? And I know I'm more sensitive because I just came off retreat, but still, when we fill our minds with evil, when we're looking at just the fact of the way that the tenants look at the world, of course we're going to be anxious because we think, I got to get ahead. Like, oh my gosh, someone's coming to take this. At the bottom of it all is the fact that love is stronger than sin. That Jesus Christ has entered into this, not to say to put those wretched men to a wretched death, but to say, I want you to participate in bringing about the good fruit that I made you to bring about. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, gracious, excellence, all of these things, think about these things and put them into practice in your own life. My friends, this second reading is Philippians 4, 6 to 9. I would say, you know, if you have the mislet, rip it out and put it on your fridge, but we have one more mass, so please don't do that. But make a copy of it, put it up, have no anxiety at all. How can Paul say that? Because he knows that Jesus Christ has entered into this with us. Not to put those wicked men to a wicked death, but to look them in the face and tell them a parable about how loving God has been from the beginning to the present. That still he is going to be tossed out of town and nailed to a cross. And yet, even though he knows that's coming, he's still making the effort to win them over. And eventually he does win over a Pharisee and Paul. And Paul writes to us today to say, have no anxiety at all. So how can we do that and keep a straight face? Stay focused on what we're called to do, to be people of truth and honor and justice and purity and loveliness and graciousness, the good things that he's made us for. Stay focused on that. Ask him for the way to do that and realize he continues to look at us like he looked at them as he gives us himself in the Eucharist, saying, this is my body, even on the night that he was betrayed, even though there's still darkness and all this stuff around us, don't stay focused on that. Focus on the fruit that he has made you to cooperate in bringing about. And then you can actually have no anxiety at all. Praise be Jesus Christ.